Chapter Five of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Five. There is a climax to everything, to every state of feeling, as well as to every position in life. I turned this truism over in my mind as, in the frosty dawn of a January morning, I hurried down the steep and now icy street which descended from Mrs. King's to the close. The factory workpeople had preceded me by nearly an hour, and the mill was all lighted up and in full operation when I reached it. I repaired to my post in the counting-house as usual. The fire there, but just lit, as yet only smoked. Staten had not yet arrived. I shut the door and sat down at the desk. My hands, recently washed in half-frozen water, were still numb. I could not write till they had regained vitality, so I went on thinking, and still the theme of my thoughts was the climax. Self-dissatisfaction troubled exceedingly the current of my meditations. "'Come, William Crimsworth,' said my conscience, or whatever it is that within ourselves takes ourselves to task. "'Come, get a clear notion of what you would have, or what you would not have. You talk of a climax. Pray, has your endurance reached its climax?' It is not four months old. What a fine resolute fellow you imagined yourself to be when you told Tyndale you would tread in your father's steps, and a pretty treading you are likely to make of it. How well you like X! Just at this moment how redolent of pleasant associations are its streets, its shops, its warehouses, its factories! How the prospect of this day cheers you! Letter-copying till noon, solitary dinner at your lodgings, letter-copying till evening, solitude, for you neither find pleasure in Browns, nor Smiths, nor Nicoles, nor Eccles company. And, as to Hunsden, you fancied there was pleasure to be derived from his society. <laughs> How did you like the taste you had of him last night? Was it sweet? Yet he is a talented and original-minded man, and even he does not like you. Your self-respect defies you to like him. He has always seen you to disadvantage. He always will see you to disadvantage. Your positions are unequal and were they on the same level your minds could not. Assimilate, never hope, then, to gather the honey of friendship out of that thorn-guarded plant. Hallo, Crimsworth, where are your thoughts tending? You leave the recollection of Hunsden as a bee would a rock, as a bird a desert, and your aspirations spread eager wings towards a land of visions where, now in advancing daylight, in next daylight, you dare to dream of congeniality, repose, union. Those three you will never meet in this world. They are angels. The souls of just men made perfect may encounter them in heaven, but your soul will never be made perfect. Eight o'clock strikes. Your hands are thawed. Get to work. Work? Why should I work? said I, sullenly. I cannot please, though I toil like a slave. Work, work, reiterated the inward voice. I may work. It will do no good, I growled. But nevertheless, I drew out a packet of letters and commenced my task task thankless and bitter as that of the Israelite crawling over the sun-baked fields of Egypt in search of straw and stubble wherewith to accomplish his tale of bricks. About ten o'clock I heard Mr. Crimsworth's gig turn into the yard, and in a minute or two he entered the counting-house. It was his custom to glance his eye at Staten and myself, to hang up his Macintosh, stand a minute with his back to the fire, and then walk out. Today he did not deviate from his usual habits. The only difference was that when he looked at me, his brow, instead of being merely hard, was surly, 
His eye, instead of being cold, was fierce. He studied me a minute or two longer than usual, but went out in silence. Twelve o'clock arrived. The bell rang for a suspension of labour. The workpeople went off to their dinners, stayed in two, departed, desiring me to lock the counting-house door, and take the key with me. I was tying up a bundle of papers, and putting them in their place, preparatory to closing my desk, when Crimsworth reappeared at the door, and entering, closed it behind him. "'You'll stay here a minute,' said he, in a deep, brutal voice, while his nostrils distended and his eye shot a spark of sinister fire. Alone with Edward, I remembered our relationship, and remembering that, forgot the difference of position. I put away deference and careful forms of speech. I answered with simple brevity. "'It is time to go home.' I said, turning the key in my desk. "'You'll stay here,' he reiterated. "'And take your hand off that key. Leave it in the lock.' "'Why?' asked I. "'What cause is there for changing my usual plans?' "'Do as I order,' was the answer. "'And no questions. You're my servant. Obey me. "'What have you been about?' He was going on in the same breath, when an abrupt pause announced that rage had for the moment got the better of articulation. "'You may look, if you wish to know,' I replied. "'There is the open desk, there are the papers.' "'Confound your insolence! What have you been about?' "'Your work, and I've done it well. "'Hypocrite and twaddler, smooth-faced, snivelling greasehorn. "'This last term is, I believe, purely Blankshire, "'and alludes to the horn of black, rancid whale oil, "'usually to be seen suspended to cart-wheels "'and employed for greasing the same.' Come, Edward Crimsworth, enough of this. It is time you and I wound up accounts. I have now given your service three months' trial, and I find it the most nauseous slavery under the sun. Seek another clerk. I stay no longer. What I do you dare to give me notice? Stop at please for your wages. He took down the heavy gig whip hanging beside his mackintosh. I permitted myself to laugh with a degree of scorn. I took no pains to temper or hide. His fury boiled up, and when he had sworn half a dozen vulgar, impious oaths, without, however, venturing to lift the whip, he continued, "'I found you out and know you thoroughly, you mean, whining lickspittal. What have you been saying all over X about me? Answer me that.' "'You?' "'I have neither inclination nor temptation to talk about you.' "'You lie. It is your practice to talk about me. It is your constant habit to make public complaint of the treatment you receive at my hands.' You have gone and told it far and near that I give you low wages and knock you about like a dog. I wish you were a dog. I'd set to this minute, and never stir from the spot till I'd cut every strip of flesh from your bones with this whip. He flourished his tool. The end of the lash just touched my forehead. A warm, excited thrill ran through my veins. My blood seemed to give a bound, and then raced fast and hot along its channels. I got up numbly, came round to where he stood and faced him. "'Down with your whip,' said I, and explain this instant what you mean. "'Sirrah, to whom are you speaking?' "'To you. There is no one else present, I think. You say I have been calumniating you, complaining of your low wages and bad treatment. Give your grounds for these assertions.' Crimsworth had no dignity, and when I sternly demanded an explanation, he gave one in a loud, scolding voice. "'Grounds! You shall have them, and turn to the light that I may see your brazen face 
plush lack when you hear yourself proved to be a liar and a hypocrite. At a public meeting in the town hall yesterday, I had the pleasure of hearing myself insulted by the speaker opposed to me in the question under discussion by allusions to my private affairs, by cant about monsters without natural affection, family despots and such trash, and when I rose to answer I was met by a shout from the filthy mob where the mention of your name enabled me at once to detect the quarter in which this base attack had originated. When I looked round I saw that treacherous villain, Hunston, acting as fugleman. I detected you in close conversation with Hunston at my house a month ago, and I know that you were at Hunston's rooms last night. Deny it if you dare. Oh, I shall not deny it, and if Hunsden hounded on the people to hiss you, he did quite right. You deserve popular execration, for a worse man, a harder master, a more brutal brother than you are, has seldom existed. Sirrah, sirrah, reiterated Crimsworth, and to complete his apostrophe, he cracked the whip straight over my head. A minute sufficed to wrest it from him, break it in two pieces, and throw it under the grate. He made a headlong rush at me, which I evaded, and said, Touch me, and I'll have you up before the nearest magistrate. Men like Crimsworth, if firmly and calmly resisted, always abate something of their exorbitant insolence. He had no mind to be brought before a magistrate, and I suppose he saw I meant what I said. After an odd and long stare at me, at once bull-like and amazed, he seemed to bethink himself that, after all, his money gave him sufficient superiority over a beggar like me, and that he had in his hands a surer and more dignified mode of revenge than the somewhat hazardous one of personal chastisement. "'Take your hat,' said he. "'Take what belongs to you, and go out at the door. Get away to your parish, you pauper. Beg, steal, starve, get transported, do what you like.' but at your peril venture again into my sight. If ever I hear of your setting foot on an inch of ground belonging to me, I'll hire a man to cane you. It is not likely you will have the chance. Once off your premises, what temptation can I have to return to them? I leave a prison, I leave a tyrant, I leave what is worse than the worst that can lie before me, so no fear of my coming back. Go, or I'll make you, exclaimed Crimsworth. I walked deliberately to my desk took out such of its contents as were my own property, put them in my pocket, locked the desk, and placed the key on the top. "'What are you abstracting from the desk?' demanded the mill-owner. "'Leave all behind in its place, or I'll send for a policeman to search you.' "'Look sharp about it, then,' said I, and I took down my hat, drew on my gloves, and walked leisurely out of the counting-house, walked out of it to enter it no more. I recollect that when the mill-bell rang the dinner-hour, before Mr. Crimsworth entered, and the scene above related took place, I had had rather a sharp appetite, and had been waiting somewhat impatiently to hear the signal of feeding time. I forgot it now, however. The images of potatoes and roast mutton were effaced from my mind by the stir and tumult which the transaction of the last half-hour had there excited. I only thought of walking, that the action of my muscles might harmonize with the action of my nerves, and walk I did, fast and far. How could I do otherwise? A load was lifted off my heart. I felt light and liberated. I had got away from Big Ben Close without a breach of resolution, without injury to my self-respect. I had not forced circumstances. Circumstances had freed me. Life was again open to me. No longer was its horizon limited by the high black wall surrounding Crimsworth's mill. Two hours had elapsed before my sensations had so far subsided as to leave me calm enough to remark 
for what wider and clearer boundaries I had exchanged that sooty girdle. When I did look up, lo! straight before me lay Grovetown, a village of villas, about five miles out of X. The short winter day, as I perceived from the far declined sun, was already approaching its close. A chill frost mist was rising from the river on which X stands, and along whose banks the road I had taken lay. It dimmed the earth, but did not obscure the clear icy blue of the January sky. There was a great stillness near and far. The time of the day favoured tranquillity, as the people were all employed within doors. The hour of evening release from the factories not being yet arrived, a sound of full-flowing water alone pervaded the air, for the river was deep and abundant, swelled by the melting of a late snow. I stood a while, leaning over a wall, and looking down at the current. I watched the rapid rush of its waves. I desired memory to take a clear and permanent impression of the scene, and treasured it for future years. Grovetown church clock struck four. Looking up, I beheld the last of the day's sun, glinting red through the leafless boughs of some very old oak tree surrounding the church. Its light coloured and characterised the picture as I wished. I paused yet a moment, till the sweet, slow sound of the bell had quite died out of the air. Then ear, eye, and feeling satisfied, I quitted the wall and once more turned my face towards X. End of chapter 5